You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. Well, good afternoon. I want to thank you for tuning in today for our sixth episode of Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. This is a podcast of the Preston Crest Church Christ in Dallas, Texas. So far, we've been looking at several different topics that we all face in our life. Recently, we've talked about forgiveness, and we talked about social media a couple of weeks ago, dealing with anxiety. But today's topic is one that I think centers around all of those things. You hear about it on social media It produces a lot of anxiety, and many times it requires us to offer a lot of forgiveness in our lives. So far, I've had preachers come on the show, and we've had five different preachers give us their insights about different biblical texts. But today, I have a different type of guest. I've asked Mike Pipkin, who is an elder here at Preston Crest. He serves as an attorney here in Dallas, and he is also an excellent teacher and preacher and presenter of God's Word to come and talk with us about Romans chapter 13. Uh, We'll get to that text here in just a moment, but Mike, thanks for being on the show with us today. Well, I'm glad to be here. Uh, After hearing you've had five preachers, I'm a little nervous about being able to step into their shoes, but I'll give it... uh, I'll give it every uh, every best effort that I can. I don't think you have anything to worry about. Tell us a little bit about uh, your family and your legal background and anything you want to add in that area. You bet. Um, my my wife, Lisa, and I have been here at, at uh, Preston Crest for 34 years. We just celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary uh, just a few days ago as we're recording this. And uh, she grew up here at Preston Crest. Um, and uh, it's third generation Dallas. So when she and I got married after after dating all the way through Evelyn Christian, uh, we really had no, uh, there was no question about where we were going to live. She's also the reason I went to law school, to be perfectly honest. I, uh, growing up in Houston at the Memorial Church of Christ, my original aspiration was to be a sports broadcaster. Uh, this, these were in the days before ESPN really kind of open the door to many, many opportunities for people to be sports broadcaster, but uh, sports broadcasters. But my mother kind of encouraged me into something that would be, you know, better gainful employment. So I got an accounting degree at, uh, at ACU, had an offer in hand from uh, what used to be known as Arthur Anderson, a firm that did not survive the Enron scandal. Uh, but Lisa, <laughs> well, the joke I like to tell is once Lisa realized that she could never she could never win an argument with me even when I was wrong, <laughs> she encouraged me to take that that skill set and to go to to go to law school and so I did uh, right after uh, we were married I went to, I started at SMU law school 
graduated there in 89. Uh, started with a small firm here in Dallas uh, that was a uh, medical malpractice and insurance defense uh, law firm, and I did everything but medical malpractice and insurance defense. I was, I like to think of myself as sort of the utility infielder. I did every every position there. But one of the areas that I, uh, that God really put me into, uh, I, and I believe, because coming out of law school, I had, you know, I had aspirations to go to a certain law firm in Dallas that actually was uh, one of the name partners was a, a, uh, an elder at uh, one of the other local congregations, and I'd gotten to know him at ACU. But it, uh, my, my grades at, at SMU were not at the level of the very large law firms, what they were looking for. So I, I started with a smaller law firm, uh, but that gave me the opportunity to get into um, an area of law that is very unique, it's very niche, it's in the construction industry, it's, it's basically the public financing side of, um, of, of construction, public uh, construction projects, because bonds are required, they've got to provide these, uh, the, the guarantees that projects will get completed, and it's called surety. And so even before I had my license, I was working on uh, surety matters, and that's something I've continued to do until today and it's mm. been it's been rewarding I love it because every project's different so it's not a cookie cutter practice each each project it fails for a different reason and so sure. you have to you have to figure out how to sort of solve that problem but um, I'm, I'm with now a smaller of after um, the middle of my uh, the middle of my pra- of my career I was with what uh, in the legal industry we call Big Law, B-I-G, capital L-A-W, uh, law firms, we, um, I, I, and spent that time in those law firms, I've, I've spent the last five years with a smaller firm, and this sort of work, the, the uh, surety work, is all we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we do some labor and employment and some other things, but it's a, it's a, a small law firm dedicated to this industry, and it's, it's been a fantastic uh, career, and it's given me many opportunities to... Uh, to do a lot of different things, including a lot of public speaking in uh, places right. all across the country. So it's right. been it's been great. Well, that's neat the journey that you've been on and the things you've got to see and wanting to be a sports broadcaster and then an accountant and then an attorney that wanted to stay away from the insurance business, which well, you know, often understand it's it's insurance defense, it's personal injury. That I, my my thing was. If a case had blood on it, mm-hmm. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to fight about money, yeah, we can fight about money. Yeah, but the the fun part of it is, it's solving problems. Everything everything that my practice involves, it involves solving problems. Now, many times we're negotiating resolutions to problems, but if we got to go fight about them in court, then that's where the trial side uh, comes right. in, and it's actually a lot of fun. You know. Right. Uh, to be able to be in, to be thinking on your feet, and to be in front of juries, and to be fun, in front of judges—it's it's it's the best part of being a lawyer, at least as far as I'm concerned. Well, someone like yourself, who is no stranger to the courtroom for legal reasons, not illegal reasons, and someone who is used to dealing with the law and going before judges and before juries and uh, defending clients, I wanted your perceptions on this very uh, problematic passage for a lot of people and 
hopefully um, you won't charge us $500 an hour today for <laughs> your for your perceptions on this. But we're going to be talking about uh, Romans chapter 13. Maybe you've looked at it before. It's kind of toward the end of the book of Romans. Uh, many people have said that of all the books in the New Testament, Romans is maybe one of the more difficult ones to understand. One of my professors at Harding, uh, very well-known professors, Jimmy Allen, who taught the book of Romans for years and years and years, often said, if, if you get Romans, then God's going to get you. And that has always stuck with me because everything that Paul talks about in this letter is so powerful for our faith and our understanding of God. Personally, there have been times in my life where I wish he would have just skipped chapter 13 or at least the first part of chapter 13 because Paul deals with authorities. Now, for his day, the authority was Rome. Uh, for our day, there are different types of government. Uh, but we're going to walk through this passage, Mike, and um, I'm going to read just a few verses and then we'll open it up for some discussions. But here's what Paul says, Romans 13 uh, the first seven verses. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Now, side note, I did not know you had an accounting degree, but that makes this even more interesting for verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give everyone what you owe him. If you owe him taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, Mike, we're just going to go there to the beginning. And, and here's my first question. Paul says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. So, everyone, that word there, is, is this every person in Rome or every person everywhere? What do you think about that? Well, I, I believe this is, uh, this is directed to all believers. Uh, I, that it's not limited just to the, to the believers in Rome. You know, this is... This entire section, I think, is is predicated uh, in part by what Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 22, when uh, you had a group of Pharisees and Herodians that were trying to trap Jesus, uh, as they often tried to do in various times, and you know they they said to him in, in verse 17, "Tell us what's your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not?" And of course, if he answered no. He'd be branded a traitor to Caesar. And if he said yes, he'd be anti-patriotic, I suppose, and, and his ministry uh, would be discredited. But you know his answer. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And you know, after they state the obvious, that it was Caesar's inscription mm. on the coin, 
he says to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And of course, that is a message that wasn't just directed to the Pharisees and the Herodians that were listening to him, but it was a message that carried forward. And I think this is, is really the basis of, of what, uh, uh, you know, what Paul is talking about here. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think just from a historical perspective, a couple of things. You know, first of all, you, even though the letter was directed to the church in Rome, there are many times when there were communications that were being carried by Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and as they were making their way through Galatia, where they're taking the rulings of the Jerusalem Council with respect to circumcision. And we don't have those letters with us today, but obviously they were intended to be carried out and, and followed by all believers and all congregations. And so, I'd, you know, I do think that's, that's the reason why this is directed to all of us, and it's not just limited uh, to the church in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, I, I, I do think there's some context that we need here. And you, you alluded to it um, earlier. And this, this was a writing, this, this letter was to a congregation he hadn't even visited yet. It was, we, we believe it was written in the early spring of A.D. Uh, 57, probably during his third missionary journey, I think is what we're, we're looking at here. And it's likely that there were believers in Christ in Rome pretty early on during the reign of Caligula. Uh, Caligula was the, was the Roman emperor at the time of the crucifixion, at the time of the day of Pentecost. And if you look at, uh, look at Acts chapter two, I love the way Luke set, really kind of set the stage for this in this in this incredibly written well-written book where he specifically mentions on the day of Pentecost there were visitors from Rome that mm-hmm. were there so we can tell from that that there were many Jews that lived in Rome during that time that had made their way all the way to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost in accordance with the law and they were there to hear Peter's sermon and many became followers from from that day and and clearly made their way back to Rome uh, during that period of time. And so, and then, the, the, so we had started with Caligula, after Caligula was Claudius. And during the reign of Claudius, uh, history reveals to us that he had actually banished all Jews from Rome for a time because of disturbances related to Christus, mm-hmm. C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, and it was probably a reference to Jesus Christ, it's mm-hmm. just, and but again, it's it's as we saw throughout the book of Acts. Whenever whenever the preaching about Jesus would be made in front of Jews, you would have Jews that would that would cause trouble. Right. And so that clearly was happening in Rome, and that's what led to to Claudius doing that. And then after that, we have Nero, mm-hmm. and of course Nero he took the throne when he was fifteen and had his mother murdered and <laughs> he was he was he not some issues he had some he had some very real issues mm-hmm. and of course um he he it's believed that he instigated the great fire in in uh, AD 64 that he blamed on the christians sure and uh and he was the was the emperor that uh, that took the lives of both of both Peter and Paul so you can sort of see though uh throughout the you know the the setting of of Paul's letter to the Romans, the sort of governmental authorities that he was dealing with, and then you sort of think about what we, you know what we're what we're looking at today here in the United States, 
what we may see in other countries, you know, he's, he's asking a lot of the followers of Jesus to submit to a governing authority like Nero. Right, right. He's asking a lot. Those are some great perceptions because I've, I've heard some people kind of perform their spiritual gymnastics to get around this and say, well, this is just to uh, the church in Rome and dealing with the Roman Empire. Well, if that, if that reasoning is correct, then there's no reason for us to read anything in the book of Romans because none of it's written to us anyway. Yeah. Uh, the, the great encouragement we have in Romans 8 about the Holy Spirit, that wouldn't be for us. The message of baptism in Romans 6, that wouldn't be for us. How Jews and Gentiles are both saved at the beginning of the book, that wouldn't be for us either. Um, if Romans 13 is not for everyone. So we can't just say, all right, this is just for that church at that time. And that's true for any doctrine of the New Testament. Paul deals with spiritual gifts in Corinth and uh, male leadership in Corinth. That doesn't mean that that wasn't true for the church at Ephesus or the church in Dallas. Anything that we find in scriptures for everybody. So now that we've kind of diagnosed that, that this is not just for one group, this is for any Christian of any age, um, he says submit to the governing authorities. Let's let's define terms a little bit. What does it mean to really submit to the government? That's a that's a good question and a, and a key question I think. Um, and it may be that we we look at it from the from the reverse side of it. You know what when when should a Christian not submit okay. to the govern governing authorities? Um, and as I've looked through this and thought about this, I, I kind of see three areas where where submission, and I, I, I've got another thought, but I want to finish this one and then I'll, I'll hopefully remember, <laughs> remember the other thought that popped into my mind. You know, first of all, if, if we as a Christian are being asked to violate a command of God, then that would be a situation where we would not be submitting to the governmental authorities. And I think we've got an outstanding example of that in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 when Peter and the apostles are are arrested for preaching and uh, they're summoned before the Sanhedrin and they're ordered not to teach anymore about uh, about Jesus and, and in the way in the name of Jesus and of course the next day the disciples are right back at it they were not going to stop preaching and uh, and so they're brought before the high priest and the high priest says, we gave, this is Acts chapter 5, we, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And then Peter and the other apostles then told them, we must obey God rather than men. The command of God is always going to take precedence over the command of government, and there really are no exceptions about that. Mm -hmm. But this is this is a specific situation where we are we are commanded to spread the good news. I mean that is that's something that we you know we all as ministers if you will of of Jesus Christ are commanded to do. Mm -hmm. And a government telling us not to do that is something that we simply we simply wouldn't obey. Peter didn't do it, the apostles didn't do it. That's why we're sitting here today because mm -hmm. they refused that command of government. The second is when and we're gonna. I know we'll. Uh, we've got some other questions about this that we'll be thinking about. But when when a Christian is is asked to do an immoral act, um, 
And of course, you know, there are a lot of applications that are obvious, but this extends into ethical areas where a Christian is asked to compromise his or her beliefs. And, uh, you know, well, there's just a lot of examples about that, but it, I, Christians are really not ever supposed to think it's okay to compromise uh, or to commit immoral or unethical acts because a government has requested that they do it. Sure. And thirdly, believers really must never go against their Christian conscience in order to obey the government. And I know that's going to be something that we talk about, but, um, you know, I think, well, I think verses five through seven also describe the type of obedience that we're called for. Verse 5 indicates the, the depth of obedience that's required of us. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of pu possible punishment, but also because of, of conscience. We're, into, we're to be in subjection, mm. not just because we're afraid of being punished, but because unlike the world, we understand that the state is divinely instituted, mm. as he refers to in, in verse 2. And that the rule that that the rulers are wittingly or unwittingly God's servants, mm -hmm. and I, I think we'll talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. They're all instituted by God, whether they realize it or not. <laughs> that they're, they're they're God's servants. They are they're there by by God. So we're called to see the big picture. Right. You know, verse seven I think really ties it up. As Christians, we, we might deplore the politics of a particular person. We might re be repelled by their behavior, but that doesn't disallow us from respecting the office. And that's, right. that's, that's submission. Uh, the person is just a human, but the office really does exist because of and at the discretion of God. I really like how you outlined those three kind of examples, occasions when submission comes into effect. This is not whether or not I obey the speed limit, or uh, you know, how many feet I build the fence off my neighbor's property, or any other civil code that we live by, we are told to submit on things that don't have a ethical, biblical precedent or trump card, yeah. or ones that affect our conscience. Now, I, I had talked about this in our our outline, Mike, and it's going to get to it a little bit later, but we've kind of jumped into it, so I'll go ahead and address it a little bit now. You um, you mentioned the, the conscience thing, or maybe even kind of going into that second category of ethics. Several years ago, I think it may have been 2015, maybe off on the year, I didn't research it, and I believe it was in the state of Kentucky, it may have been another state, but there was a small business bakery owner who was asked to uh, make a cake for a couple who uh, was a homosexual couple and that bakery owner refused to bake the cake and it made national news. So, uh, and they refused to bake the cake not out of hate but out of Christian conscience. Mm -hmm. Does that work into this type of example? Oh, absolutely. Um, it was actually in Colorado, not Colorado, Kentucky. Okay. We had, uh, There's the attorney coming out. Right. Well, and I, I took the opportunity to, to at least pull the, the summary. It's, I, I did not have the case number, okay. but it's, right. it's Masterpiece Bake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. I did okay. uh, 
I did go have a look at that, and, and the um, you, you've identified the facts, and the the uh, basically the argument was whether Colorado had what what's called a public accommodations law, mm-hmm. and it it feeds into anti-discrimination laws that you have in you know federal laws as well as state laws, and whether a business could make choices as to whether to accommodate the accommodate a public request. And so, of course, you've got then Masterpiece Bag Shop, who, as you mentioned, uh, was approached about, about uh, you know, and, and I would argue in this particular case was sort of targeted, perhaps, because there's actually a, a subsequent case that came up against this very same bakery when a uh, transgendered uh, individual wanted to have a cake made with, uh, I think it was pink icing and blue cake or something like that so that you know there was another case but his his position was i have i have a have a first amendment right mm-hmm. of free speech and of free exercise of religion that allows me to be able to say no i'm not going to to bake this cake for you and um and i i absolutely believe that uh that that he had a right to do that and the, and the united states supreme court eventually held in his favor was a 7-2 ruling, so it wasn't one of these, you know, narrowly decided type cases. Uh, And I think there are a number, especially recently, there have been a number of of free exercise of religion cases where where it's pretty clear that the United States Supreme Court, even as narrowly divided as it is right now along political lines, apparently, and uh, at least along ideological lines, that the 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 free exercise of religion clause of the First Amendment is still mm. on all fours. It mm-hmm. is very strong. It's being uh, it's being upheld, um, and we've we've seen some recent examples of that as well. I I absolutely believe that that a Christian uh, a Christian's conscience can inform what they do in that regard. Mm-hmm. I would say if you're if your listeners are interested, if you're interested. Um, there's a writer named David French. He's uh, with an online um, news organization outlet called The Dispatch, who is a uh, Supreme Court. He, one of one of his one of his beats is religion and the Supreme Court, and he's done a lot of tremendous writing on that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes he writes weekly on a number of different things, but mm-hmm. uh, he's he's a real expert on that. Mm-hmm. So this example that you're citing, and also the commentary you're providing with it. Here, here's a real example of something that we've lived through in the last three or four years. Uh, this woman says, I cannot bake this cake because it goes against not only my my conscience as an individual, but my Christian conviction. And she is not in um, violation of Romans 13. Right. I think there's a clear example, as you mentioned, in Acts where Peter and John and the other apostles, when they say you're behind bars, they go behind bars. But when they say you can't talk about the Lord, they say, well, that's where we draw the line. Uh, we have to obey God instead of men. And what's interesting about that story, I know that you know this, but 10 verses later in Acts 5, 39, the great rabbi Gamaliel intervenes and he tells the authorities, you guys better cool it. Yeah. Because if these men are from God, they're going to win this. If yeah. they're just you know, protesters and uprisers, it's going to go away. But if it's from God, it's not going away. So even they understood, as the authorities, these men have a right uh, to live out, live out their faith, and we still have that right today. 
not just in America, but I think in any country of the world, you submit until you are told to do something that the Lord would no longer approve. Okay, so here's one that's always confused me, Mike, and maybe, maybe you can help me figure this out. Let's just talk from a government standpoint, and then we'll get to the theology behind it. But Paul says that the authorities that exist, verse 1, they've been established by God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you alluded to that a few moments ago when you said they, they are divinely instituted. If government really is established by God, and I'm not questioning if it is, that's what the scripture says, but if it is established by God, then why, let's just start from the days of Caesar. We could go before that. But why since the days of Caesar to the days of Fidel Castro to English government, to United States government, why are there different forms of government from dictatorships to democracies if they're all established by God? Well, I mean, um, for, for one thing, in, in, in Romans chapter 13, we don't have a, a statement about what type of government there ought to be. Uh, I wish, you know, and, and oftentimes that we, we'd had that. We'd had that instruction about, you know, perhaps we ought to go with representative democracy like we have here in the United mm-hmm. States. Uh, it it doesn't show us which form of government is, is best. It, it doesn't com- commend or even discuss representative democracy. So, you know, so much of the difficulties I think that we find in Romans chapter 13 result from what's read into it rather than what it actually teaches. And one of the things that I think it it actually teaches is there's a a reference to the authorities being God's servant. And the the word that is used there in Greek is diakonos, Mm -hmm. which is deacon we from from which we get the word deacon so the the idea that that Paul is talking about here is no matter what the form of of government it's there to be God's servant it's there to it's there to serve God's people so then the question becomes well obviously we've got we've got these different types of governments many of which do not serve God well certainly do not serve God's people well but then what's the alternative? Remember, remember back in Judges, you know, we had a, we had a time there in the, in the life of, of the Hebrew nation where I think in, in the book of Judges, <clears throat> it's referred to that, you know, every, everybody just sort of looked after themselves, right. right? Everybody did exactly what they wanted. And it was the worst time, the worst time mm-hmm. for, for, uh, for God's people because they didn't, they didn't have any form of government that was watching, uh, watching over them. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so, it, 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 even even the worst form of government, even North Korea, is better than than chaos and no government whatsoever. And so, yes, we I guess we choose the form of government, and in, in many countries, the form of government has sort of been chosen by people who have who have been entrenched over over the years but even today i mean in the united states <coughs> we've got a situation where you know every every 48 years we we transition our form of government and it's it is uh, you know clearly especially as we become more and more polarized mm-hmm. uh, there there can be uh, a tendency to say and you've heard this before he's not my president Mm. You know, 
Well, that's that's clearly not what what Paul is talking about here. He is he is whether you like him or not. He is the he is the person that has been put in place to lead our government. Now, the other part of it, I think that I want to I want to mention here is it's not it's not necessarily I don't believe that that Romans 13 is talking about the individual. Now, clearly, when when you're talking about Rome, it's it's an an, emper, an emperor led government. Sure. But in the United States, we're governed by the rule of law. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, the constitutional uh, form of government that that our founding fathers created is a miracle in and of itself. It is. It is so. It 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 was so incredibly well thought out that we are we're governed by the rule of law. We elect our representatives to be able to uh, to lead our government, but really the governing authority is the rule of law, mm-hmm. as passed by our representatives through Congress, as enforced by the executive branch, and as interpreted by the judicial branch. And so, um, I, you know, why? Why some countries have allowed certain types of governments to to uh, to rule them for you know decades, if not centuries, I don't know. You know, it, uh, but <clears throat> but we we do know based upon what Paul's telling us here in Romans 13 that those governments are put in place by uh, by God, and that we're and we're to be subjected to uh, we're we're to submit to them. Maybe a good way to kind of harmonize this in our minds is when. The Holy Spirit uses the word government here, and when Paul writes using the word government, maybe it's just this mindset, this idea that somebody's got to be in charge. Yeah, It's not a breakdown of democracy versus monarchy, dictatorship versus you know free speech. There's got to be someone calling the shots, and there's got to be people who follow that individual. Um, and, and that kind of leads us into the age-old question. Um, let's look outside of American politics and go back 60 years to men like Hitler or Stalin, uh, more recent years Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein. Paul says men who are in power are God's servants. Does God <laughs> really put men like Hitler and Stalin and Hussein and uh, bin Laden in power. I think this isn't new. You know, Daniel said that God sets up kings and deposes them mm-hmm. when he praised God in prayer for revealing revealing to him the king, uh, the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel two. And his point, I think, was conclusive from from Nebuchadne- Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom to uh, God's final kingdom, mm-hmm. God's in control. And he is setting up kings and he is taking down kings in order to fulfill and accomplish his, his perfect will. But as I mentioned before, I, I, I mean, I love what Paul says in verses three and four. Uh, the essential role of government is <clears throat> encapsulated in, in the designation that it's given twice. It's God's servant. Mm. God's servant. While the while the Roman government was empirical in nature, the point here is that it's the government mm. that is God's servant. It's the rule of law. And also, an evil tyrant 
or a president or a congressman or a judge or, you know, locally a county judge, a mayor, that sort of thing, they can be they can be God's servant whether they know it or not. <laughs> they really they may not be able to, to fully recognize it if they're not believers. But God has them in place for a reason. You know, government is there as a servant of God and as with any deacon, uh, and I was a deacon for 20 years, before, more than 20 years before I was an elder here at Preston Crest, our job as, as a deacon was to humbly serve. And so what Paul's saying here is that government is either going to willingly and, and wittingly serve God, or it's going to unwittingly serve God. It'd be awesome if those in places of political authority understood and believed this, but it, it is it is the way it is. I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're in place, whether they are evil, um, one way or the other, they're, they're God's servant, whether they know it or not. I think a great example of that going way back, you know, 300 years after the uh, death of Christ, but when Constantine makes Christianity finally legal for the Roman empire, he's not doing that because he's wanting to be a good Christian. He's doing that out of a move of power and politics. But Absolutely. In that, in that instance, he's God's servant. He yeah. makes it now safe for Christians to practice their faith. Yeah. And I think we see that in our world today. There are decisions made in Congress, um, in our laws, in our judicial system, by those that we would not fellowship with in our church. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, some of the things they do really help the cause of Christ. Now... At the same time, some of the things that they do, they hurt the cause of Christ. So here's a question I have for you as well. We're supposed to submit, and we've already kind of diagnosed, we submit until either a biblical teaching or an ethical position or our conscience is violated. But how how do we still challenge the system, even if a biblical teaching is not compromised or our conscience isn't compromised or ethics aren't? darkened how do we challenge the system without compromising our faith let me ask you i'll ask you a question first and then i'll see if i can try to answer what do you what do you mean by challenge the system make things more the way that god would want them to be okay all right well i mean that's that's where yeah i i think we as christians are called to be active participants in our government, I, I don't. I really don't believe that we are intended to just be passively submitting to the government. Uh, there are there are believers. We know that there are believers that that are uh, are actively involved in in, in government and in, in positions of, of power. Um, Senator John Cornyn is a member of the University Church of Christ in in Austin. Mayor Eric Johnson of Dallas is a member of the West Dallas Church of Christ. These are two very great examples of, of, um, of believers in Jesus Christ who have elected to make personal sacrifices to be able to serve, uh, serve not only uh, their, their country, serve their constituents, but to, to carry their belief system into government to see if they can be effective change agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know it's it's very, you know, in, in Dallas the the mayoral system is uh, you've got to be dealing with um, you know a city council that's all serving individual constituents. In Congress, 
especially in the Senate, you know, you've got to you've got to be able to work with people <clears throat> to accomplish uh, the things that you you're hoping to be able to accomplish. But that I, I think that's that's how we, as as individual citizens, you know, there there are if there are things that we believe are contrary to to our faith system, then we've got vehicles by which we can com- communicate that to our our representatives. Now you talked in your um, in your podcast a couple of weeks ago about social media, and clearly. You can, you can go if, if depending upon who you follow in social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, uh, or any of the other uh, major vehicles that are out there, where you can see a lot of people that are at least thinking they are challenging the system. I suppose uh, by their expressions on right. on uh, on social media. I will tell you just personally, and people are listening. You know, this this is the, I think I've mentioned this before. I don't. I on Facebook, uh, they, they've got a snooze feature, <laughs> and I have I have gotten now to the point that if any any of my friends on Facebook post political things, either side of the fence, you know, it's it's either side of the political fence, I snooze them for thirty days because I that's I, you know, typically on, on social media, it's it's uh, the the dialogue is is a little more. Heated, I think a little, sometimes a little more irrational, and I'm I'm trying my very best to sure. to fill my mind with things that are that are empowering and uplifting, mm-hmm. and I have found I'd I'd rather do that than debate the issues of the day, so to speak. But I I think that's I don't know if I've answered your question no, you or not, but I mean it's it's we've got we're not submission doesn't mean inertia and not doing anything. It means being active. And if there are issues where you absolutely believe you can't submit to a governmental authority because because it violates your conscience or because it's uh, because it's 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 asking you to act immorally or unethically, you've got a duty to stand up and, and not do that. That's so funny. You mentioned Facebook and the 30-day snooze feature. <laughs> a lot of a lot of churches have that feature. Remember, snooze on preachers for about 30 minutes. But um, <laughs> that's the first thing that I thought of when you, when you mentioned that. But I, you know, you mentioned good examples, Brother John Cornyn down, uh, you know, in Austin, uh, the mayor here in Dallas mm-hmm. as a member of the church. Um, Shelton Gibbs just won the county judge seat for Kaufman County. He's a yeah. he's a member of the church. So I think it's a a really good point that you're making is something we need to be very cognizant of in that government is God's vehicle. God's people need to be involved with God's vehicle. Yeah. I am by no means a pacifist. Um, the separation of church and state does not mean the church and state have to be enemies. Right. They can work together, though they ultimately are governed by two different authorities. Um, we need to be involved. We need to peacefully try to make a difference. We need to use good reasoning, good logic, um, good individuals, talented individuals to help promote the Lord's cause in this land. Now you mentioned politics and you want to stay away from politics. I'm going to last, I'm going to ask this last question without getting too specific, but it is an election year and we're not hearing a whole lot about it in the news like we normally would because of COVID-19, but we're now less than a hundred days away from a presidential election. Um, is there 
there's no good way to ask this question, but is there such a thing as a as a Christian vote? And I wanted to find the terms. I gave you the question, so I'll read it for the listeners. Then <laughs> when I gave it to you, here's what I mean by a Christian vote, because we I think we use the term Christian pretty loosely when it comes to Washington, but is there ever a time when it's impossible for a Christian to vote for a specific candidate or platform uh, because by doing so it could serve as an attack on Christianity? Mm. That's it, it's that last that last clause that I think is the thing that makes it makes this question hardest to answer. Okay. I mean, there's no question that, um, you know, just speaking from a personal standpoint, uh, I have made decisions about who I vote for, not necessarily because I believe that individual would, would, be ta- would, be, would be doing things or taking steps that would attack Christianity. But I have made decisions about who to vote for based upon uh, my my belief that they, a specific candidate. Let's let's talk first about candidate. A specific candidate did not behave in a in a way that uh, I believe a, a Christian mm-hmm. should. Okay, and that's that's gone back ever since I had the power to vote. You know, when mm-hmm. I turned eighteen many many years ago. <clears throat> There's no question, though, that there there absolutely are are platforms, party platforms, that uh, that contain a lot of of things that I find completely objectionable as a as a Christian, and that if if you assume that a party platform has meaning mm-hmm. today, which I think every, less and less as the parties become weaker, and I, I don't want to diverge into you know political talk here, but you know as parties, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your your listeners are are uh, turning off right now. Um, you know the parties have become weaker to the point where you really are starting to focus a whole lot more on the person mm-hmm. uh, who's running for a particular office rather than what the what the party platform stands for. But I mean, there, uh, I I do I do think it become if if it's not impossible for a Christian to vote for a specific candidate, it makes it harder mm-hmm. for for you to. It, it may. I mean, once you go in the ballot box and you pull the curtain behind your, you know, you're you're in the, you're in the little stand that they have these days. I'm I'm old enough to remember when you pulled actually pulled a curtain behind you. You know, you're you have a personal choice that you're making right. about the person that you're voting for. Right. And and whether that person warrants your vote, and whether as a Christian it it's. Um, it's appropriate for you to, to, to want to vote for that person. I will tell you that my study and preparation for this, I think, is has is, is challenged my thinking on it. Uh, you know, you, so so many times you hear, oh, well, this, this person is God's man or God's woman. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Romans 13, there, you're, and we, as we've talked about here, this, they're, these, these servants, these public servants, if they're elected, they're going to be servants of God whether they, whether they like it or not. And so it then, you then have to start thinking about who would be the best servant of God under the circumstances. 
And it, I think that will challenge my thinking uh, a little bit in the elections, you know, the election that we're going to have in less than 100 days and the elections to come. But, uh, but I, I will say there, there can be no lack of prayer that we should have for our public servants. Uh, not only, um, well, really primarily that they, that they realize that they're servants of God mm-hmm. and the roles that they play, right. and that they, they, think, they think about that role uh, very carefully, mm-hmm. uh, and that the, the decisions that they make, and, and there may be ones that, that you know, I'm, I'm concern, I'm, I am a conservative. Mm-hmm. They, may, they may be making decisions that I disagree with politically, but if, they are, if they're seeking God's guidance in the decisions that they're making, then, um, then uh, that's what we ask for them to do, right? That's, right. Uh, we might disagree with them politically, but if they're really seeking God's guidance and making decisions believed on, what, on, on that, on what they're seeking, then that's all we can really ask for them to do. I like your terminology. We can disagree with them politically and not even say fiscally, mm-hmm. but when it comes to spiritual matters that would stand in direct opposition to the Lord's will, the Christian approaching the ballot box has got to think carefully about what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. <laughs> I loved your point earlier. They're going to be servants of God if they realize it or not. Yeah. Earlier, and I believe in Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul refers to God referring to Pharaoh as his servant. Mm-hmm. So even back in the days of Moses in, in Egypt, God viewed Pharaoh, even though he was an evil dictator, as his servant in that instance. I guess the thing that concerns me the most, and I heard uh, most about it in 2016 when I was preaching, here we are now in 2020, and though the coronavirus has dominated a lot of our conversation the last almost five months now, this could be one of the most pivotal elections in American history. Um, I think Christians need to be careful when they make statements like, well, this candidate's going to be better for my business, or this candidate's going to be better for my tax bracket. But if a candidate or a party or whoever they are, if they are doing things that's in direct violation of the Lord's will and you claim to follow Lord Jesus, King Jesus, your business and your tax bracket don't matter as much as spiritual theological mm-hmm. truths. Um, and we need, to, we need to remember that when we are good servants of our country and when we want to help the vehicle that God has established, what would God have us do in this instance? Last question, Mike. You've done a fabulous job. I don't want to keep you too much because <laughs> if we go over one hour, the the tab's going to go up somewhere. <laughs> um, we talked that long. You do, you do a great <laughs> you do a great job with this, but but I'm going to read the question exactly how I sent it to you because I think the wording is wording is important, and you live this in your life. How do you let people know first and foremost that you are a Christian who also serves as a lawyer, not just a lawyer who happens to be a Christian? That's a great question, um, and I will say, going back to what I talked about, the, my industry that I'm in, the uh, the, the surety industry has a, a fairly strong national organizational presence, and I've been blessed with the opportunity to lead certain organizations nationally uh, that focus on the on the surety industry, and in the course of my and I've been able to go to these these groups and be involved in these groups nationally for more than 20 years. And, and as a result of that, 
have been able to develop relationships with people all across the country, not only fellow attorneys that do what we do, but clients mm -hmm. that are able to send work my way. And, be, and through these organizations, I've been able to get to know people personally, and people have been able to get to know me personally and what I stand for. Uh, I can't tell you that, I can't tell you how many times as I've been you know, able to talk to people that, that uh, and getting to know people that they've asked me questions about my faith and why I do certain things. I don't, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many parties I've gone, you know, cocktail parties I've gone to where I'm the person with the Diet Coke with the lime and I get asked about why I'm not, I'm not drinking with them. And it gives me an opportunity to share my faith, the reasons why I believe what I believe. And so, you know, most of my clients are, are very large national insurance companies. And they hire me because they know me. And, and I think it's because I've been able to share my faith with them, they know that when they're hiring me, they're not only going to get, hopefully, a high level of skill and experience after 30 some odd year, you know, 31 years of practice in this one specific area, but also they know that I'm not going to be a lawyer who is going to cross a line mm -hmm. for them or against anybody else. And I, I believe that it, you know, by, by being able to share my faith with my clients, they know, I mean, first of all, I've never been asked to cross a line by a client, not once. And I want to say that's because they know who I mm -hmm. am before they even hire me. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, because I've been able to build a relationship with them and they know me and they know my family and they know my faith. And so if, if they want somebody that will, you know, push an envelope or cross a line, sure, they're not going to call me. And there, there's other attorneys that are out there that are that uh, may be a little more willing to do that, but they know I'm not. And so I've, I've, I've been blessed with great clients. I mean, mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic clients that I go to the mat for, work incredibly hard for, but they know that it's gonna be, it's gonna be under the code of ethics that we as attorneys uh, are responsible, <laughs> responsible to adhere to, and that we're gonna be dealing, you know, we're just gonna deal with the facts that we have, and the law that we have, and we're going to make the best arguments that we can make mm -hmm. under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, to me, it's about people knowing, you know, getting building relationships with clients, where it's not just about business. It is about it's about faith. It's about family, and getting to know the people that uh, that I do uh, work for and am blessed to do work sure, for. Sure. Well, Mike, I sure appreciate your answers and insights today, and. That's really good to have someone who's in the legal system every day kind of helping us wrap our minds around this difficult topic. We've talked about submitting to the authorities today. It's in Romans chapter 13. You can read it for yourself. It's there. We can't ignore it. We've got to live by it. But even through this, just like anything else, we have a tremendous opportunity to glorify God, encourage people, and really portray what it means to live like Jesus in this world. I want to end today by ending the way that I always end each episode. In this life, you're going to have road work along the way, but here at Road Talk, we want to help you get ready and navigate your journey. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to talking with you next time.